The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Well, good morning. Um, well, I met my guest, uh, the guest that we have here this morning, about 20 years ago. It is former FBI Special Agent Ron Whitney. Good morning, Ron. Well, good morning to you, Francie. Thank you so much for being on the show. This is fun because I've known you for years. Um, but since retiring from the FBI, Ron has taken a few paths that may surprise you. Ron, so tell us about you. How did you get started with the FBI and what were you responsible for when you were there? Oh my goodness! Um, I <laughs> it goes back a long ways. I first saw the show. I was a senior in high school, and my father wanted me to be an electrical engineer. And uh, I said, "Okay, I'll took all the science and math courses in high school, and was preparing to go to uh, Auburn University to become an electrical engineer." And then, when I was a senior in, in high school, I saw the movie. The, the FBI story with Jimmy Stewart. This is back in uh, 1959, 1960, something like that. And then my interest started to go that direction. Um, I said, you know, this is something I would really, really like to do. And uh, after a couple of years of beating my head against a brick wall at Auburn, I said, you know what, this is not what I want to do. I want to become an FBI agent. So I transferred to my hometown of Charleston, South Carolina, uh, I got my degree in history from the College of Charleston and was planning on going to law school and uh, being a clerk with the FBI at the same time, uh, which is one of the best ways to get in. Uh-huh. And uh, then Vietnam came along, and I couldn't be deferred from the, from the draft. And so I talked to the different recruiters and decided to go in the Air Force and um, uh, go to officer's training school. I spent uh, 59 hours and 20 minutes Trying to, trying to fly an airplane and realized that wasn't, uh, that wasn't cut out for me either. And so um, I, I finally washed out and um, went to aircraft maintenance school. Well, in the meantime, I found out that you did not have to have a degree in law or accounting. You just had to have uh, a four-year degree from a, a, an accredited college, which I had, plus three years of managerial or supervisory experience, uh, which as an officer in the Air Force, I had. And so uh, after I got out, or I, about six months before I got out of the Air Force and resigned my commission, I uh, put my application in uh, to the FBI. And uh, two years after I put my application in, a year and a half after I uh, resigned my commission in the Air Force, um, I got a letter from 
Jed go over saying, um, welcome aboard. Wow. So I started in May of 1972. So it took a year and a half after you applied to receive the letter? <clears throat> well, yeah, because, because um, well, I say because, I'm, I'm going to assume it was because there were so many people who were applying at that time, and uh, each state only had um, a certain number of um, uh, people who could uh, enter new agents training. And I was living in Arizona at the time. And so huh. I, I don't know the real reason, but that would be my guess. I just had to wait my turn. You had to wait your turn. Okay. <laughs> and so then uh, where did you, what was your first assignment? Uh, Los Angeles. Okay. I spent and five years in Los Angeles. Yeah. Okay. And what kinds of things did you get involved in and um, where did you go from there? I was working fugitives, uh, selective service violations, uh, applicants. Um, I did a little bit of uh, terrorism, and um, th that was mostly what I did when I was in Los Angeles. Interesting. And then um, when you retired, which was, what, 23 years later? Well, it was January of 95, and I spent okay. my last 18 years in the FBI in San Francisco. Okay, in the San Francisco office. Right, San Francisco yeah. office. Right. Okay, all right. Um, we we have we know some other people that worked in the San Francisco office that are um, private investigators now as well. Right. So okay, so you retired in '95, and immediately the day after you opened a private investigator after, office. Yeah, the day after I had already taken the uh, uh, the. <laughs> private investigator test a few months earlier, and my, my plan was uh, I was going to hit the ground running the next day after I <laughs> retired. I, I retired January the 3rd, opened up my office on January the 4th of 1995. That's amazing. And where was that office? Uh, it, at that time, I was in uh, Antioch. Antioch, California. Okay. Oh, yeah, All right. Sorry, yeah, Antioch, California. That's where I was living. Okay, and, and you're, you were going to specialize in elder fraud and elder abuse? Well, not at that time. That kind of evolved over, over the period of time. I was uh, just going to do um, uh, whatever, whatever came my way initially. Uh, I was doing um, uh, background investigations. I was um, uh, serving uh, papers, um, doing some family law, uh, location of uh, witnesses, um, uh, uh, personal injury cases, those kinds of things. And then as time passed and I started to get an interest, I, um, I, I started to really get an interest on uh, two things, child abuse and elder fraud. Uh, the people at, in our society who are relatively helpless, and those people are children and um, the elderly. Interesting. And where did you take that, Ron? Did you, did you really well, develop that end of the practice? With the elder fraud and um, yeah. uh, elder mm -hmm. abuse? Well, yeah. I, I worked a few cases uh, for attorneys um, uh, regarding uh, elder fraud and elder abuse. Um, and uh, it's it, it just kind of a, an evolutionary thing that I said, okay, this is, this is something that needs to be addressed. Uh, and let's, let's take a look and see where the elder fraud is going on. And it's, it's, it's just um, epidemic what is happening uh, to people who are elderly. It's, yeah, for sure. Uh, and so you're still actively operating your practice? 
As a private investigator, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, you are. Okay. But then somehow you got involved in counseling, lay counseling. Tell us about I did. that. Yeah. I I was talking with the uh, interim pastor uh, one day at uh, Hope Center Covenant Church in Pleasant Hill, and uh, I was expressing some of my concerns uh, that were going on there. We weren't, I didn't feel like that we were addressing some, some of the issues that needed to be addressed. And um, to make a long story short, he said, well, have you ever thought about being a lay counselor? I said, well, not really. And he suggested that I, uh, there was um, uh, an organization in Concord at the time called um, New Directions. And mm-hmm. so uh, he said that I would probably, he said I should contact them. I did. And they said, okay, uh, we would like for you to uh, take a uh, lay counseling course. And they recommended uh, Rafa RAFA counseling in Pleasant Hill. And at, at that time, I'm not sure about now, but at that time, they were all uh, PhDs and they were all Christians. And so that's that's what I um, that's what I did. I took a 72-hour course over nine months. I got certified as a um, LA counselor. I went to New Directions, and as a lay counselor, you don't get paid. Um, uh, they, you have to be licensed by the state uh-huh. as a um, marriage and family therapist. At that time, it was marriage, family, child counselor. And then uh-huh. they changed the designation several years ago to marriage and family therapist. And so I worked over there for a year and a half. And then I talked to the uh, new pastor that came in at, at Hope Center and uh, told him what I would like to do. And he said, because I, like I would like to change from the directions to be under the auspices of Hope Center. So that's what I did. And he said, okay. that's fine. So uh, New Directions, my I have some experience with New Directions. Don't they do a lot of substance abuse counseling? Uh, well, they do a lot of, uh, they do all kind of uh, counseling. They're no longer in, in, in business, as far as I know. Uh, I don't know how long ago they, they ceased to operate. But it was for low-income people who uh, were not able to afford uh, the services, uh, whatever the um, therapists were charging, and they could come in and um, uh, pay five, ten, fifteen, whatever they could afford, five, ten, or fifteen dollars, and they could get counseling. They would, and there were some of the uh, counselors who were there who were like myself. Uh, we were we're, we're lay counselors. We we're not licensed by the state. Mm-hmm. And then some of the other ones were interns, uh, getting their hours to eventually take the test and become licensed by the state. That wasn't my interest. Yeah, okay. And and when you approached the uh, interim pastor at Hope uh, Covenant Church, what were the problems that you saw that needed you thought needed to be addressed? I saw people hurting. I saw people hurting, and, and that we, were, we just weren't addressing their pain. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I said, you know, this, this is concerning me because my passion is for people who are in pain. Okay. And this is so interesting, Ron, because one of the uh, one of the wonderful things about being able to have this program is to show the many facets of private investigators and former law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And this is mm-hmm. a, an inter- a, an unusual mm-hmm. and interesting path you've taken. So where did where did well, you take it from there? I'm sorry. Where did you take it? You became a life coach then, following that. Well, <laughs> I, I, I had been a, um, a lay counselor for uh, several years, 
And uh, I was talking with a friend of mine one day, and uh, she said, Ron, you ever thought about uh, being a life coach? I said, what's that? And she told me uh, what a life coach does, and I said, whoa, I do part of that right now. Yeah, because counseling is about the past, coaching is about the future. And so uh, you go yeah. to see your counselor or a therapist, and uh, the counselor will go into your childhood and help you figure out what got you to the mess that, <laughs> to the mess that you're in. Right. And coaching is about the future and says, okay, what do you want and what, um, what do you have to do in order to get there? How are you going to go about getting there? And I said, wow. I, I do some of that with some of my clients. And so then I checked into it to find out um, what um, what was required. And so I took a four class um, by by telephone. It was uh, what they call a telebridge. Huh. So I, I um, there were 24 people in the class from all over the country. One of the teachers was in, um, the other one was in, um, a suburb of Seattle. And so wow. we'd go in there for an hour uh, twice a week, and um, we would be taught uh, what counseling is all about. And then uh, I got my certification. I'm not, well, I'll say a certification. I'm not licensed. You don't have to have a license as a life coach. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but it's, it's really important. Uh, I, I talked to a lady about a, a year before I, uh, who, who was a life coach, and about a year before I took the class, and she suggested that I get uh, a niche. And there, might, I don't know, there are 50 or 60, maybe more than that now, different niches that life coaches have. And uh, after talking with her for about 30 minutes, her interviewing me, and uh, she said, well, you know, Ron, uh, in my opinion, what I see your biggest strength is is in relationships. Hmm. Uh, you have... You have the all the earmarks of being a good coach for helping people with their relationships. And I said, I would agree with that. So um, I, as, as, as things progressed, I decided that I was going to call my business Connecting with Life uh, because it's all about relationships. And uh, that's, that's mainly what I do is help people in the, in the coaching business is I help people learn how to communicate effectively, uh, and especially parents who, um, uh, most people, and this is not a criticism, but most people really do not know how to communicate effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what I want to help the parents do is learn how to communicate with each other so they can be good role models for their children. And um, because children, they don't learn nearly as much from their parents by what their parents tell them to do or not do, but they learn by what they see or how they see their parents interact with each other. Mm. They take it in by osmosis. Interesting. Well, I love the distinction between the uh, therapy and the life coach, the past and the future. Uh, that's that's kind of a, an interesting <clears throat> distinction. Now, you're also a grief recovery specialist as well, correct? Yeah. And uh, so you counsel with people that have lost loved ones? Yes, yes. And, or yeah, even lost a pet. Or, or uh, even lost, lost a, a job. Huh? Or lost a job. Interesting. Okay. Lost a job. Any kind of, any kind of loss. And um, I uh, had one of my clients, she was a counseling client, uh, 
several years ago because I'm, I'm still do, I'm still doing the lay counseling as well as the coaching. And she um, gave me a book one day called The Grief Recovery Handbook, and it's by John James and Russell Friedman. And I read that, and I said, oh, my gosh, I have never seen anything that can compare with what these two men say in this book about helping people recover and uh, uh, get well from their from their losses. Uh-huh. Uh, we don't, I, you know, I hope this doesn't sound critical, but uh, I don't think we do a very good job in our culture with helping people uh, process their losses. And people live in pain for years and years and years. I so, would agree with that. I said, okay, um, after, after I read this book about a couple of years later, I said, let me go online here and see if there's any kind of, uh, any, anything that I can take uh, to bec- become better at this. And so I went online to the uh, Grief Recovery Institute, and by golly, uh, they had uh, seminars, uh, four-day seminars. Uh-huh. And so I went to one about four years ago down in um, San Bruno, and um, there were 11, there was a total of 12 of us in there, and for four, <laughs> a very, very intense four-day seminar, eight, eight hours a day, um, and after after that seminar, then I got a certification uh, to be a uh, grief recovery specialist, okay. and I work with people who have been um, or have any any kind of loss, whether it's a, uh, a parent, uh, a, a spouse. Uh, the worst thing out there is losing a child, or even a pet, or uh, moving uh, anything like that. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And besides there, you're you know besides all these other things, you're a uh, certified premarital counselor as well and coach. Yes. And yes. Uh, you're a member of the, uh, a network called the Christian Coaches Network. Right. This is amazing. This is an amazing path, Ron. Uh, we have so much more to talk about. We need to take a break and we'll be, at, be back in a couple minutes. Okay. <clears throat> The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Former FBI Special Agent Ron Whitney is talking about improving relationships through communication. And one of the things he didn't mention is he also facilitates a pro bono class on effective communication and boundaries for women who are involved in various stages of alcohol and drug rehab. So Ron has made it his business to learn as much as possible about communicating and creating strong relationships. I think that's really clear. And so this is an important show for all of us who are in the communication business. We interview witnesses. We interface with clients. We testify in depositions in civil and criminal courts. We have to be able to develop strong connections and communicate effectively. So, Ron, with that... um, with that description, uh, how do you start with people? Tell, tell us how you develop these good relationships and connections. Now, um, are you talking about in the classes on effective communication that I facilitate? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, let's, let's talk uh, about that, uh, about your okay. class on effective communication. Yeah, I have facilitated several classes over the years on effective communication. I have a list of 21 subjects. Um, that I hand out, I ask the class to look these over and then make a check by anyone that they think is um, uh, something that they might they might have a problem with, and then we start talking about it. And the best thing that I can, that can happen in the class is <clears throat> the, the the people in the class start talking with each other, and then I just become the uh, the mediator. And uh, if I see them going down a uh, what I call a rabbit trail, or what is known as a rabbit trail, I don't call it that, but it's known as a rabbit trail, then it's my, then I want to bring them back and, and stay on topic. Uh, and, and to give you an example of um, one of the things that are on, on this list uh, is um, you never respond to an emotional situation with truth or logic. And uh, a good example of that, and we men are usually... Uh, guilty, more guilty than what women are. I mean, this is a this is a broad brush, so it's not it's not exactly 100%. But most of us men are fixers. Um, we want to get to the bottom line. We so our, our wives come home from work. They've had a bad day at work, and they start telling us uh, about their bad day, and they're emotional about it. And uh, after about 30 or 45 seconds. We men interrupt and say, well, honey, what you ought to do is <laughs> fill in the blank. And mm-hmm. the woman doesn't want to hear that mm-hmm. because what, <laughs> what she wants to do is, is feel hurt. She doesn't want her husband to give her a solution at that time. She wants to be hurt. So what is your remedy for that? Well, I help the, uh, I help the man uh, uh, learn how to listen without trying to fix I help him learn how to be empathic, uh, be caring, compassionate, genuine, and attentive. 
And I tell the man, I said, if you will do these things, she will feel understood. So the same thing applies really with the interviewing witnesses, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. 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 We often are interviewing somebody uh, that's on an emotionally charged subject. Mm-hmm. And how do you, uh, so if I can transition you to that scenario, how's, what's your response? Well, it, I, I just listen. And at some point in time, the person uh, may uh, say something uh, that, that I, at that point, as the investigator at that point, I will then ask a question um, that I, I think is pertinent, at least what I hope it is, and get them to talk about, get them to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. What is this? What are so some of the other items on your list? Your twenty-one oh, items. Uh, um, never say anything to your significant other that can be interpreted as an attack. Give me an example of that. Sure. Um, you've probably. Uh, heard since you've since you've been doing what you've been doing for a long time, uh, the term "make I statements." Okay, meaning right? would you explain that for for everybody? Sure, sure. Um, instead of saying, you know, you did this or you did that, uh, then the person can say, "Well, I, I didn't do that." They can defend themselves, and mm-hmm. it sounds like an attack. And mm-hmm. instead of saying that. Um, you know, when you said fill in the blank, I felt fill in the blank. Say, say how you feel. Also on my list is uh, tell your significant other what you need, feel, want, or would like. Okay. As opposed to, uh, so, so you don't say something like, um, we never uh, do this, or you always. You don't use the word never and always. Okay. But you're asking about how does this translate to uh, interviewing somebody, the the biggest key I think for an investigator is to be able to listen and not be thinking about the next thing that they're going to say, mm. um, but listen very carefully to what the person says, and then staying on topic with that. That is you don't a, criticize you don't criticize huh? That is so key. Of you're yeah. you're actually right on. So key to just be present. And, and respond uh, supportively. Yeah. Now, getting back to the never, never saying anything that can be interpreted as an attack, uh, one of the things on my list is you never ask the other person the why question, such as, why did you do that? Because uh-huh. <laughs> we're going to feel uh, that, that that's an attack. We're going to get on the defensive when the person says, well, Ron, why did you do that? You know, that's, that's, an in, that's an interesting statement, Ron, because uh, when we're interviewing witnesses, we want to know what, why, where, how. I mean, I'm sorry, what, Who, what whatever where, they where, are. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, whatever, right. whatever those terms are. Um, but, but you're right. The why is typically immaterial. It is. We want to know what totally happened. Irrelevant. We want to know how it happened. We want to know where it happened. But... The why is uh, often just doesn't matter. 
So why I ask don't it? Ask my, I don't ask my uh, clients the why question. What I say is, do you, do you have any idea as to what is going on inside of you that uh, caused you to respond that way? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Would you say that to a witness too? Uh, depending on what the witness was was telling me. Yeah. Okay. It, it, I have to. It's the idea of staying present with the witness, right? And right. listening to what he says. Um, and it, it, it's that. Then you. Ask, then I ask questions uh, that he um, he or she may not know the answer to. And I have to be very attentive to what that uh, witness is saying, and don't worry about it. if he says something that I know is 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 uh, not true. I will say, well, tell me some more about that. And so uh, I'm not going to question him and say, well, <laughs> you know that's just not true. Mm-hmm. I'd never do that because if I do that, then he's going to clam up. Mm-hmm. Well, and and uh, counseling is really a, a lot like interviewing. Um, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And and I you mean, have to you have to let your own biases leave your own biases outside the door. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I I learned that lesson when I was at the FBI in Los Angeles, and um, I was interviewing this guy. He was a, um, a selective service violator, which is uh, also known as a draft dodger, and um, he t- he told me a couple of things that I knew that were not true, and I said, um, "Well, you know, Mr. Jones, or his eighteen, nineteen, twenty-year-old kid," and I said, "Well, Mr. Jones, um, I have a few more questions that I'm going to ask you, and some of them I know the answers to, and some of them I don't know the answers to. The problem is." you don't know which ones that I know the answers to. <laughs> uh-huh. And he said, this interview is over. <laughs> oh, he did. And I said, I, I said uh-oh, I, I, I can't do that again. So uh, I learned that, no, you don't, you don't tell him that you know that he's lying to you. You, you, you stay with it and let him tell you what he's going to tell you. And then you All right, put the so, pieces well, together the, what would you have? What would you have done differently? How would you have said it differently, Ron? I would have. Um, I would have just letting. I would have just asked him the questions that I was going to ask him, and then record those, and then um, talk to the. Well, at that time I was working. Since I was in the FBI, I was working uh, for the United States or assistant United States attorney, which mm-hmm. is the same thing as a deputy district attorney uh, in on the state level. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would report those things to him and then compare it with what other witnesses say to see, you know, where the truth where the truth is. And that would help to determine whether this guy is going to be a good witness in court or not. Okay. And so, okay, so you just, um, the whole difference is not challenging him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you don't challenge him. No, yeah. you don't want okay. to put him on the defensive. Uh, and and if I if, if I have a witness when I was in the FBI, if I had a uh, a witness that I wanted to put some pressure on, uh, I would bring him into the office. If I had a witness where I really needed his, needed his cooperation, I would either go to his house or meet him at a neutral site, because uh, I want him to feel relaxed uh, and and give me the information that I need. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and, and you know, I think um, it's been my experience that many investigators think that when they uncover a lie, for example, or uncover something they think is deceptive, they need to, they feel like they have a need to challenge it. And it doesn't matter whether it's a, a criminal case or a civil case or, or, or domestic or, or workers' comp or whatever it is. They feel like, oh, it's my job to make sure this guy tells the truth. And that isn't our job. No, you're right. No, it's, it's not our job. And, and uh, let the attorney get the guy on the witness stand and, and cross, cross-examination, then challenge him, but not... Mm-hmm. Not uh, not while I'm investigating. Not not while I'm interviewing him. I don't want to. I don't want him to feel that he is on the defensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our job is to gather the facts, try yeah. to determine the truth, um, mm-hmm. and evaluate the witness. Right. Totally and then agree. take that all to whoever our client is. Say again. And then take that information to whoever our client is. Absolutely. Totally agree. I mean, I, I found people, uh, particularly on criminal, criminal defense cases, where they, uh, where they think the defendant is lying to them, and they probably are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and, they probably are. Yeah, probably are. And uh, many cases they are, or they're sending the investigator out on wild goose chases. Um, right. But uh, if you destroy that relationship, then you have nothing. <laughs> then you have nothing. That's right. And at yeah. some point in time, see... Uh, in my opinion, at some point in time, you may need to go re-interview that witness. Right. And if you have established a good relationship with him or her, then they're willing to talk to you the next time. If, on the other hand, uh, you've done or said something uh, that turns them off, then they're not going to want to talk to you again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I... Um... Okay, so so what are some of the other things that you learned um, through your counseling, your grief counseling, your marriage counseling, um, premature counseling that you can apply to working as a private investigator? Well, uh, the the main thing is just what we've been talking about is listen to the um, uh, to the witness without um, challenging him or her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's the main thing. But actually, okay. I learned that I learned that when I was in the FBI, is uh, you know for inter- interviewing people is how, is, is how to do that. So you when you never challenge the witness. Okay, so um, when you start out an interview, Ron, can kind of walk me through the process of how? Uh, let's pretend uh, I'm a witness. You're okay. you're interviewing me regarding some something you've done, or something some case that I've been involved in. Tell me how you'd start out. Okay. Well, the first thing I would ask is, um, he's a witness. I said, it, it, it would it would depend. Uh, and let's, uh, can I assume that the witness is somebody that knows the defendant? Sure. Let's, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. Because that would make a difference too. Uh, first question I'd ask is, how how long have you known the witness or, or the defendant? Uh-huh. Um, and... What is your association with him? Uh, do you spend a little time with him? Do you see him uh, once a week, once a month, once a, every six months? And when you do see when you do see him, what do you what do you two do? What do you talk about? Um, and then I would ask him um, what he actually saw 
the first thing I want to do is establish that rapport so that he feels good about me um, and, 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 and is relaxed. And um, I, I let him know how important, if he's a witness for the defendant, I want to let him, let him know how important it is for him to tell me the truth because uh, as, uh, when, he, when he's telling me the truth, then that's going to help his friend, uh, the, the defendant. And so and then I will go in and ask him, well, okay, you said that this happened. Um, can you be specific about the sequence of events? Can you give me a kind of a narrative of um, what you saw happen? Okay, so let me ask you, when, you, when you're talking to this person, do you refer to the defendant as a defendant, or do you personalize it and refer to him by name? I usually uh, uh, um, refer to him by name. I think that's more, uh, I think that's more personal. I, if, if I refer to him as a, the defendant, uh, it might, um, if he's a good friend of the, of the defendant, it, it, he, he might be put off by using the term defendant. I want to do everything I can to make it as personal as I possibly can so I can uh, get the information that I want from this witness. Okay, okay. Uh, okay, so so we have we often have um, two kinds of witnesses. Well, th- maybe three kinds. We have uh, we have people that may have witnessed something but don't know don't know any of the parties. We have people right. that um, are maybe character witnesses that know one know the party that maybe is charged with something or or is uh, going through a, a some kind of a civil suit, and then we have people that are hostile. Right. So how do you how do you approach those ones that you know are going to be hostile? Um, with well, um, well, you know what? We, let I, me I, let me give you some thinking time on that because we need to take a break. So let me give you just okay. a quick thinking time, and we'll be right back. Okay. <clears throat> Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. 
voiceamerica.com. You're listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today's program discusses improving relationships through communication with Ron Whitney, a former FBI agent. And we were just uh, talking about interviewing witnesses. And uh, the question I asked Ron just before the break is, what if you know, how do you approach the witness you know as a hostile witness when you go to their door? Yeah, okay. If, if I know the witness is a, a hostile witness, then the first thing I want to do is make sure that I don't do anything at all to make him even more hostile than he is. Um, and so I want to do whatever I can to ingratiate myself to him. Now, they, that may never happen. I mean, there are people out there that just don't want to talk to me. And uh, so I will uh, I, I will just have a general conversation with him about about the weather. Or if I, if I let's say I see something, um, if, if he's wearing, let's say, a, a warrior's shirt, I will talk with him about... Uh, they um, talk with him about Steph Curry or, uh, um, oh, what's the other guy? I can't think what the other guy's name is right now. Anyway, I would talk with him about something that he is interested in, if I, if I can see that. Uh-huh. And, um, and then we'll talk about uh, for five, maybe ten minutes, if it takes that long, to talk about things that he is interested in and see if I can't soften some of his hostility. Uh, I want to do anything that I can to diminish uh, any kind of um, hostility between... I mean, see, I don't have anything against him. He doesn't have anything against me personally. He doesn't know me personally. But uh, if he's a hostile witness, he doesn't like anybody who's going to be coming out there. Mm-hmm. So that would be the way I would approach it. And at that point that I sense in his body language and his facial expression and the, the way he's... Uh, what he's saying, uh, if, 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 there's, if there is that time when I sense that he is starting to uh, soften up a little bit, and I don't mean that he's a wimp, I'm just saying that he starts to not have as much anger or uh, mm-hmm. whatever, then I'll start asking him uh, questions about the case and make sure that uh, I, I'm going to make sure that I ask the questions that I came to ask, uh, but I don't want to do anything at all uh, that would turn him off. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes but the main thing I, is the main thing is to uh, get him to not be uh, so angry or hostile or have animosity toward me or uh, the the attorney that I'm working for or whatever. I want to minimize that. Right, and sometimes it's just a matter of continuing to talk. Right. Yes. Just just yes. continuing to it's talk about- because if you take right. if you take your immediate no for an answer, um, you might find that you've lost out on some really valuable information. Oh, absolutely. So totally now let me, ask, let me ask you, if you, um, if you know there, if that's a hostile witness, do you, and it's a criminal case, say, for example, do you distance yourself from, from the defendant? 
no, I'm out there. I'm out there as the um, attorney's representative, uh, and I'm not going to dis- distance myself at all. I'm going to. Um, I'm going to do everything that I can to uh, uh, have that uh, hostile witness uh, be on my side. Mm-hmm. But but you but you probably emphasize. I suspect that you're a neutral party. Oh uh, yes. yes, that you're you're working on behalf of the attorney for the defendant, but not necessarily. You're not like the defendant's friend. You're not there on his oh, no, no, as an no. advocate. I, I see. I see. I see what you're saying. No, I'm not the defendant's friend at all. I have I have no emotional atta- attachment to the defendant. Okay, I'm out there. Uh, working for the attorney so that the defendant can get the best representation that he can get. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not about, quote, getting him off. It's about making sure that he's properly represented uh, in in our court system. Uh, and, you know, Ron, one of the things that I know you do, uh, this is just an observation, you're very warm and engaging, where I think, uh, you know, this the stereotypical... Uh, idea of somebody uh, that does private investigation and goes out and talks to people is somebody like Joe Friday, just the facts, you know, just the facts are very, very cold, (laughs) stiff. Yeah. And you are definitely not that. No, that's not my, that's not how I approach people. Yeah. Uh, And I, I can see that you, uh, you know, you really approach uh, people very engaging and uh, friendly and uh, I, I would think it would be hard to turn a, turn you away from the door. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I hadn't been in the FBI, but, oh, maybe a year or so. And I went out to interview this lady one time um, uh, after about a year or so. And I don't even I have no idea what, what the case was about. <clears throat> but I knocked on the door. This lady that looked, I, I was 31 years old. And the lady comes to, and I'm only, I'm only five six. So, but well, at that time I was five seven. And <laughs> so the lady comes to the door, and um, she looked like she was in her late forties, early fifties. And uh, this was at the time when the FBI show was on TV, with Ephraim Zimlis being the the, the FBI agent mm-hmm. that was going all over. And she, I showed my credentials to her and asked, her, asked said, I'd like to ask you a few questions. And she said. Well, you don't look like Ephraim Zimlis Jr. I said, "Yeah, I know. Uh, he's tall, dark, and handsome, but I figure two two out of three is not bad." <laughs> That's very good. Well, yeah, and the, and that brings up another thing that humor goes a long ways if it's the right kind of humor. If it's self-deprecating yes. humor, yes, it goes a yes. long ways. Yes, and 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 she laughed, and uh, then I have no idea whether. Uh, she was going to be a hostile witness or whether she's going to be a friendly witness. I just need to go out and talk to her. And uh, w- w- when she laughed, then I saw her uh, warm up because, uh, <clears throat> you know, when I don't feel this way, but I imagine there are a lot of people out there, they, they oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, the FBI is knocking on my door. He wants to talk to me. And then they don't, they, they, they uh, lose their train of thought. Oh, I, you know, I absolutely. If the FBI was at at my door, I would probably be speechless. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I had been up here in San Francisco, I don't know, two or three years, and um, this lady had applied, a neighbor had applied for a job 
uh, at some, I don't know what it was, it was some, some government job where the FBI was doing a background investigation on her. And uh, when I got home, my wife was telling me about it, and she said, Ron, this FBI came to the door and asked me about uh, uh, Joyce that lives three doors down the street or two doors down the street. And she said, I don't know who you're talking about. And she said, I was so embarrassed because I know this lady. But she said, and even though I've been married to you for several years, when he knocked on the door to show me his credentials, it, it frightened me. And so I really? know. I, I understand that. I understand that. Yeah, even though she was married to an FBI agent. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, she didn't know the FBI agent. Uh, he was just somebody that came to the door and knocked on the door. And, and, and I understand that a lot of people have that kind of, um, have that kind of uh, response, and especially if it's the first time they've ever, that they've ever been interviewed by an FBI agent. Well, and that badge carries a lot of power. So how did you, when you left the FBI, one day you have a lot of power with the badge of the FBI, and the next day you're a private investigator and have no power. <laughs> How was that? Well, I learned. Well, I learned. I don't know. I can't remember when it was, but I learned. Oh, gosh. I would. Uh, when in the FBI when I was 30, uh, I, I, would, I would say it was in my late 30s or early 40s that I learned who I am is not what I do. But who I am determines how I go about doing what I do. Mm. And so uh, my identity was not as an FBI agent. That's what I did. But that's not who I am. There is a huge, that's a huge statement, Ron, because I think that um, many times, particularly people that have been in law enforcement for 30, 30 years, that's a, that's a tough concept. It is. It really is. Yeah. But as I say, I, I didn't take it out. I, I, I walked out of there and I said, okay, uh, I don't have a gun anymore. I don't have credentials anymore. And I don't have a badge anymore. And um, now I'm Ron Whitney. Now what do I do? <laughs> That's a challenge. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, because now i got to look at me. Now i got to look at me huh. and say, what's going on inside of me? Uh, that is is the real Ron Whitney, and and looking at myself. And you're going to have to depend just on yourself. I'm sorry. I'm sorry what did you say? You said. And what? you have to. And the only person you have to depend on is yourself. There's no right. supervisor right. behind you. There's no government nope. behind you. No credentials. Nope. No badge. Just Ron Whitney. Just just Ron Whitney, and and my uh, my boss, my bosses. Are my clients. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So was it a big, was it a, a tough transition or not? For me, it was relatively easy because, as I said, I learned several years before I retired that who I am is not what I do. Okay. What, so and what so advice it was, would you huh? What advice would you have uh, for somebody that's retiring from any kind of a government agency, law enforcement um, position today? What What would you? How would you tell them to to accommodate the change? Well, I'd have to I'd have to uh, talk with them and, and find out uh, what their feelings are. 
about uh, retiring. Um, and and before I could give them any advice, I'd have to um, actually sit down and have a conversation with them. We might uh, sit down and have a cup of coffee. We might have lunch. We might sit down and have a beer. I don't know. Uh, but uh, whatever we could do, uh, that um, uh, what I, what I, one of the questions that I would ask is, okay, you're retiring. Do you have any thought as to what you would like to do when you retire? I mean, you're a young man. You're only 55, 60 years old. Uh, and you have to retire from the FBI at age 57. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any thought as to what you would like to do on the outside? And depending on his answer, he said, well, I've already got a job so-and-so, uh, and I'll start work tomorrow. Then uh, I sound like it's good to me. How, how do you feel about that, making that transition uh, from uh, your law enforcement career to the, this other job you have in civilian life? civilian life? And it would depend on his answer as to uh, what kind of um, what a conversation uh, where the conversation would go. I wouldn't give him any advice unless he asked for it. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, if he said, "Well, Ron, how do you handle this?" and I'd tell him. But basically, it would just be a conversation between two men or a man and a woman. Okay. So, if somebody wanted to uh, contact you and talk to you about that, could they do that? Sure. Absolutely. How would they go about contacting you, Ron? Uh, just, just uh, can I give him my telephone number? Sure, you can. Yeah. Okay. Uh, just tell him to call me at nine two five seven zero eight five three three seven, and I'll be more than happy to talk with them about whatever they want to talk about. I may not have the answer, but <laughs> and a lot of times I don't have the answer, um, and I don't have any problem with saying, you know what, I don't know, but I'll find out for you. And if they want to get together and talk for on a personal one-to-one, I'll be more than happy to do that. Sure. Okay. So it's 925, area code 925 5337 yeah. 5337 And then you're, you named your, I guess, is your company connecting with life? Uh, the name of my business, well, the name of my PI business is Whitney & Associates. Okay. The name of my... The name of my uh, coaching business is Connecting with Life. If okay. You, if you go onto the website, it's connecting. It's www.connectingwithlifenow.com. Okay. And when I first got my domain uh, name there, I wanted to have it Connecting with Life, and they said, "Well, you don't have. We don't have Connecting with Life. Uh, there are a few other uh, suggestions." And I said, "Well, what about Connecting with Life now?" And the lady said, yeah, that's available. And the reason I put the now in there is because <laughs> I want people to see the urgency of dealing with whatever it is. Uh, so often I, I get clients that have been married for 20, 25 years, and they're at stage, what I call stage four relationship cancer. And then they want me to uh, help them resolve their conflicts that's been going on for 20 plus years. And I tell people, I said, you cannot rush healing, but you can delay it. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I just logged on to your website here just now. You have Relationship Coaching for All, Connecting with Life, Maximizing Your Relationships. And it's it's mostly about personal relationships, but um, right. you don't have anything up here about uh, job transitioning, but that's certainly one of the relationship issues you deal with. Uh um, no, you're right. It, it, that is not on the, I hadn't thought about that. 
um, as as part of my niche. Uh, but that's something I can talk with people about. As I say, the main thing about about me is relationships and connection. Okay. All whatever, right. So whatever whatever the business is, it's about connecting. All right. So Ron, we're at the end of our show. Thank you so much for your insight and for joining the show today. Uh, I have to say this has been uh, an interesting conversation. And thank you to our Laurel sponsors, PI Magazine and IRB Search. So tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Ron Whitney. It's PI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to PI's Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.